Well, Merry Christmas to you, all of you. Thank you for being here uh, this evening. And, um, you know, once a year, we take time to celebrate and to think through the significance of what it means for the God of the universe to send his son to earth through a virgin so that he could be the perfect sacrifice for us about 33 years later uh, on our behalf. And, um, and so um, as we recount that, about once a year, we, we listen to the story, the story that was recorded by Matthew and Luke. Mark doesn't give us an account of the, of the nativity. John does not give us an account of that, just Matthew and Luke. Um, and so uh, a lot of this story is kind of locked in history. There are some historians who like to think that Jesus never existed, even though we have historical evidence that that is the case. Um, they like to think that he wasn't what he claimed to be and what the church knew him to be, even though there's significant historical evidence that support our position. Um, there's more evidence for the, the Christian faith, ancient manuscript evidence by far than any other evidence than historical manuscripts or whatever that, that you can find. I mean, it's just, it's, it's almost laughable how much evidence there is historically of, uh, the, of who Jesus was, the claims that he made about himself. Um, and so the world doesn't want to believe this story because if they believe this story, it means certain things about themselves that they don't want to have to come to terms with, like submission to Christ, obedience to Christ, those kinds of things. So I'm going to read the story, make some comments as I do as I go through, and if you want to raise your hand and ask some questions about it, you are welcome to do that. But I'm just going to work through this fantastic story about the birth of Jesus Christ. So it begins then, and this is a combination. I've put together both accounts between Luke and Matthew, hopefully in sequential order. And, uh, and so I'm just going to read you this story and then make some comments as we go through. So in Luke 1, 26-35, and I'm reading from the NIV, in the sixth month, God sent the archangel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. Now, this was an arranged marriage. Many of you know that. So those of you who are younger, if you lived in that time, so I'm looking at you, for example, your parents would have arranged for you to have been married. They would have selected a woman for you. Um, and so from maybe when you were three or four years of age, and you would have had to wait until you were about 18, until she was about 12, and, and, uh, and that's the person you would have married. Uh, you didn't marry for love back then. Uh, you married because of uh, family connections and, 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 uh, and those kinds of things. And so... Uh, the idea of marrying for love is a relatively recent uh, human invention uh, that, uh, that we experience today. So 
In any case, uh, it's, here's what's interesting. In the Gospel of Matthew, they give Mary's ancestry. And her ancestry indicates that she is from the house, the lineage of David. Um, when Joseph is referred to in this account, um, what's interesting about it is the writer will say Mary and her husband Joseph. They never did that. They never, they never referred. In fact, it was always the reverse. It would have been Joseph whose wife was Mary. But the fact that Mary was referenced first demonstrates that she was um, selected in a special way, that she was to be honored in a unique way. Um, and so uh, she, she found favor in the eyes of God, and she would be, as the scripture says, uh, she would be honored throughout the course of the history of the church because of this role that she played. So it was, it, it, it's remarkable that her name came first in that regard. So um, we read then in 2 Samuel, verses uh, 7 through 16, it records a covenant established by God where David, with David, wherein God made three major promises to David. First, God promised David's house, that is his physical line of descent, that it would endure forever. The second was, God pledged that David's kingdom would never pass away permanently. And the third was that God promised that David's throne, the ruling authority that David exercised, would never pass away permanently. So his house, his kingdom, and his throne would remain intact. And you think, well, how is that? I mean, you know, there are only about 15 million Jews uh, in the world today. How, how is it possible that the throne is still there? It's because the house, the throne, and the lineage was transferred to you and me. That we become part of the ancestry of King David. We are a part of that throne through Christ. So... That's what's going on here. So then the, the story continues. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Don't you think that if God appeared to you and you were to see like an angel, the archangel Gabriel, for example, and he said, it, it, your, what would your first thought be? Would it be like, hey, he's going to say something really nice about me. Or are you thinking like, uh-oh, <laughs> what, what do I have to explain now? But the first words out of his mouth is, are greetings, you who are highly favored. How would you feel if Gabriel the archangel said to you, you are highly favored by God? And if you were a 12 or 13-year-old girl, in Palestine, where basically you were viewed as property, you had no power, no influence, and yet this is what the archangel, probably the most powerful of all of the archangels, he and Michael, said to her. Mary was greatly troubled or agitated by his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. 
But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. I mean, we read those words and they sort of pass over us, but to find favor with God is no small thing. To have the character and the heart and the soul where God finds favor with you is no small thing. Especially when you're a young girl or a young boy. But then he goes on to say, you will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, which means Yahweh, or God is salvation. So in the, in the Greek, we know that word to be the, the Messiah. The story goes on and says, and he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord will give him the throne of his father, David. So he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. I suppose if you're a new parent, you always hope for the best. That you want your son or daughter, sons or daughters, to be men and women of character. And that in their life, they are able to make some kind of significant contribution to humanity. I think every parent desires that of their child. We don't want a child that is a ne'er-do-well. I mean, we don't want our child to be a ne'er-do-well. We want our child to achieve something, to do something more with their life than what we were able to achieve with ours. So what does Mary hear? That he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. Well... Okay, you know, that's better than being president of the United States. Although many of us wouldn't wish that on a lot of people, but still, you get my point. So then it goes on and says, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Now, the word Jacob, you know, there were three patriarch, patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were the three primary men that established Israel as a nation. They were, they were uh, revered in the culture of Israel. So when he says, and he will reign over the house of Jacob, he takes supremacy over these patriarchs that established the whole of the, Israel, the Israeli nation. And his kingdom will never end. Imagine. Imagine for one moment that you're this young girl and you're about to give birth to this child and you're a virgin. And that that child that would come from you would have this kingdom that would never end. I mean, how does a person even process that? So then Mary asks the very practical question that anybody here, I think, would ask. I mean, she receives all of these superlatives. You are highly favored. You're going to have this child who's going to be the greatest person that ever existed in history. And so the first words out of her mouth was, were, well, how can this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? How is this possible? 
It's an incredulous question. It's a rational question. The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. So you are highly favored. You have been selected by the God of the universe to give birth to this child, his son, that the Holy Spirit will place in your womb. And that's a very important thing to understand. Because Jesus was not a product, he was not a a direct product of Mary, he was not a direct product of Joseph. He did not share in the DNA of Mary, he did not share in the DNA of Joseph. In fact, later on in the text, after they're married, the text reads that Joseph did not know Mary until after she had given birth to Jesus, so that there was no confusion that Jesus might have actually, in fact, been the biological son of Joseph. He was not. And why is that? Because if, if Jesus had shared in the DNA of Mary or Joseph, let alone both of them, then he would have shared in their fallen nature as well. Because we are born in sin. Our DNA has been compromised by the fall. And we pass it on to our children. And there's lots of evidence of that, that we pass our DNA on to our children and our fallen nature to our children. Because as parents, we say, when our children do something they shouldn't do, that's just like you, we say to our spouse oftentimes. Do we not? (laughs) So it doesn't win us any awards when we do that, but we do that. Verse 36. Even Elizabeth, Gabriel says, your relative is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. So the first, the first words out of Mary's mouth were, how will this be since I am a virgin? Gabriel explains to her what is going to happen. And the second set of words out of her mouth are, I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word be fulfilled as you have said. Now, there are other heroes throughout Scripture that when God called them to do something fairly significant, they argued with him. They resisted him. They tried to explain it away. They didn't want that kind of a burden. But that was not Mary's response. I mean, it had to flash through Mary's mind that to be pregnant outside of marriage in that culture would not be received well by her people and by her tribe, by her community. It would not have been received well. In fact, in ultra-conservative communities, that were mosaic, in other words, if they lived according to the law of Moses, they might have stoned her to death for being being pregnant outside of marriage. Mary had to know this. And yet her response is, I am the Lord's servant. May your word be to me, may your word to me be fulfilled 
as you have said. What a great example from a young girl for all of us, that when the Lord asks us to be faithful in some way, to do business justly, to be forgiving to people who have wronged us, to give grace, to choose the high road in how we live our life, to live according to the fruits of the Spirit. And when we are challenged in those kinds of ways, sometimes we're tempted inside to say, Lord, this is too hard, I can't do that. You don't understand what I have to live with in terms of my family, my work, my community, all of, it's just too hard. Well, none of that is any harder than what Mary had to face. This 12-year-old girl who is going to give birth to the Son of God. Do you think she went back to her parents and her community and said, hey, guess what? Gabriel the archangel appeared to me, and you can't believe what he said to me. He said that, he, that the Holy Spirit was going to place a child inside my womb and that I'm going to be pregnant. So if you see that I'm pregnant, that's what happened. Isn't that awesome? I don't suspect that she had that conversation with anybody. I do suspect that she wondered about how she was going to explain that. But that wasn't the thing that gripped her heart. What gripped her heart was the statement, may it be to me as you have said, I am the Lord's servant. So when the Lord calls us to do a difficult thing that's challenging, if this 12-year-old girl can say, I am the Lord's servant, may it be as you have said, could we not do the same? So now we come to Matthew 1, verses 18 through 25. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. So even though they weren't married, if they were betrothed to each other, to be unbetrothed, you had to go through a divorce. But to go through that divorce would imply, I mean, people would ask the question, why don't you want to marry this girl anymore? And the typical reasons why you would divorce somebody that you have been betrothed to would be in infidelity. So to, so to divorce her would, would beg the question, why? And the answer was almost always infidelity. And he did not want to expose her to public shame, to ridicule, and to bring dishonor upon her family. So he was going to divorce her quietly. He was, not going, he was not going to make a public spectacle of her. He was not going to tell people in that community how he had been wronged. He was just going to divorce her quietly. And hopefully Mary could be sent off to some distant cousin in some faraway place where she could bring to fruition her birth and then be on with her life and he could be on with his. Now, 
Joseph probably was about 18 years of age. And to be 18 years of age and to have that kind of a heart and that kind of compassion was a pretty remarkable thing. I mean, the public shame that would have been aimed at Joseph, that his betrothed had become pregnant, not by him, but by someone else, or maybe people did suspect it was him. I mean, really, we, I think we've heard these kinds of stories before where someone unfortunately would become pregnant out of wedlock. And, uh, and the question, well, who's the father? Is it your boyfriend? Well, no, no, it's not my, well, no, it's not my. And the boyfriend said, well, wasn't me? I mean, how do you explain that? So it's a clunge. But despite the fact that it was a clunge, both Mary and Joseph handled themselves in very honorable ways. But after he had considered this, that is Joseph, an angel, after he considered about divorcing her quietly, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So Joseph is now kind of read into the salvific plan of God. Imagine the kind of faith this would require, as well as the wonder it must have caused. Not unlike Mary, Joseph was being entrusted with raising the child of the Son of God. Imagine, men, if God came to you, if Gabriel, the archangel, came to you on behalf of God and said, the woman that you are engaged to is going to give birth to a child. And that child is the son of God. And I am entrusting that child for you to raise him safely and carefully, honorably. You have been entrusted with one of the greatest things, well, probably, no, the greatest thing in the history of the world. How would you respond? She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the prophet Isaiah, where he says, The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so a couple of Sundays ago, I talked about the word Emmanuel and the significance of it. It only appears three times in all of Scripture, but the poignancy and the power of, the power of that word is, can never be understated. So that Jesus came to be with us. He was God with us in his physical form as a human being. And then after his death and resurrection, he sent the Holy Spirit. We read about in Acts chapter 2. And so if, if you are a believer the Holy Spirit comes to live in your heart and it's Emmanuel all over again. But with the Holy Spirit living in you as Emmanuel, now, now, now you are Emmanuel to a world that lives in darkness that surrounds you. 
So it's just an ongoing thing. The significance is very powerful. So we read here in Isaiah 9, verses 6 through 7, where it says, For us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So that was uttered 800 years before the birth of Christ. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord commanded him. He acted obediently and took Mary home as his wife. So he married her. But he had no union with her until after she gave birth to their son. And he gave him the name Jesus. So normally in, a first, in, in that culture, the firstborn son was all, almost always named after the father. But he obediently gave the name Jesus to this firstborn son. Now we read in Luke 2, verses 1 through 38, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. So they wanted to know how many people were in the, was in the empire, along with other data, so that they could figure out how to tax people and how to rule them. Um, and so this was the first census that took place while Quirinius was the governor of Syria. So we have this historical figure of Quirinius. And so as a part of that then, everybody was sent to their hometown that their, where their, their ancestors came from. So there was this massive migration of people all over the region where people had to go back to their hometown in order to participate in this census, to register for it. So Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth. In, now, Nazareth was this nowheresville little town. Um, and so they, they lived out in like the sticks. And so Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth uh, in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. So this underscores the fact that both Mary and Joseph were from the house and line of David. And the promise about how David's kingdom would never end, how this king would come from the lineage of David. Uh, and, so, um, and so we see this underscored here by um, Luke outlining that. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and expecting a child. Now understand that in the ancient world, there were no accommodations, like nothing was ADA. There wasn't anything like that. You know, you can't open a popsicle stand today without it being ADA. But that's not, that's not the case here. So, however they traveled, uh, with Mary pregnant, there were no accommodations. So while they were there, while they were there in Bethlehem, the time came for the baby to be born. 
and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, um, a couple of things. Some of your texts will read how he was wrapped in swaddling clothes. So it was a common practice to take vinegar and salt and to blend them and to rub them all over the body of the baby. And they saw that as a preservative. And then they wrapped him tightly in clothes. That's the term swaddling clothes. Um, and so you get a little picture of some practices that, that were a part of their, their life at the time. Now, I suppose what made this passage kind of like famous or infamous because there was no room in the inn, uh, most of us who are older grew up hearing that in the King James Version. And in the King James Version, which actually is not a bad translation, but they used the word inn, and from it they took the, their idea of what an inn was in their world in, in 1611. And in our world, when we think of inn, we think of like the Holiday Inn or something like that. But that's not really what they were referring to. There were two words for the word inn in the Greek. One was kataluma, and the other was pandokion. So the Pandokion was a literal inn. It was a place where people who were traveling and needed to stay the night, it was like a hotel, like the Holiday Inn or Quality Inn or whatever. The Pandokion was a guest room in a home. So when it says, and there was no room for them in the inn, there was no room for them in the Pandokion, not, a, not the Cataluma, the Pandokion. There was no room for them in the guest room of the house they were staying in. So, um, and so, uh, I, and I've used illustrations before in the past, but if you picture sort of a rectangular house, if somebody came to visit you, oftentimes you gave up your room for your guests and you slept in the common area. In many of the ancient, and it's still true to this day, in many places in rural uh, parts of Palestine uh, or Israel, you have the, 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 like the master bedroom on the first floor, and then you have like the common area, and then, and then there's a, a lower area where they kept animals. And, it was, and that lower area was cordoned off maybe with like a little fence or something like that, but it was all one open area, and they would keep animals, animals in the lower area to, to, for the warmth of their bodies and to keep them safe from thieves. And between that lower area and the upper area that was a common area uh, were things like mangers where they would feed the animals out of. And so the animals would walk up from that lower end. It would be this high and they would, they would bend down and they would feed out of a, a manger or a trough. And it says that Mary placed her baby in the manger, in the trough. So that she wasn't born... Jesus was not born in a, in a stable. He was born in a home. In fact, Kenneth Bailey, who's one of the universally recognized experts on the culture of Palestine, and, and when I say Palestine, I mean the larger area of the Middle East. Um, he said, 
if you talk to people there and they were to say that if you had family coming in because they, they had to come in and they needed a place to stay, for family not, or even for someone in that community to not invite somebody in who needed a place to stay would bring great, uh, it, would, it would just make them very disreputable, great humiliation. Nobody would ever turn away a woman who was pregnant and about to give birth. So she was staying, they were staying in a home, but everything was so crowded. And probably in the guest room, maybe the elderly people were staying there. So she gave birth to her child in the common area and Jesus was placed in the manger between the lower part where there, it was really the stable and the upper part where they really lived. So then Luke goes on to say, but the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the house in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. And so, this is be, and so Gabriel is saying this to the, to, to the shepherds. And as he says this, suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, Irene, shalom, to, whom, to men on whom his favors rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what they had been told about them regarding this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds had said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered on them in her heart. Now there's much more to this birth account, to this narrative, and I, I don't have time to, to go over. In fact, I, I skipped over a lot of commentary of the last section that I just read to you. But this is what we believe. This is what we stand on in our faith. And you know what? I don't care if no one else believes it. I don't care if scholars don't believe it. I don't care if politicians don't believe it. I don't care if some of my best friends don't believe it. I don't care. When I read these words, they affirm in my heart what I know to be true they confirm much of what we know about history. And so this is what, this story has been a part of the 2,000 year old history of the church. This is what we believe and teach about Jesus Christ. And it is an amazing and wonderful thing. And we should be joyful, thankful, and give glory to God Every Christmas, every Christmas Eve, we, rem we remind ourselves of this great narrative. That's the beginning part of the story that offers man salvation 
that has saved you and I from our sin.